1: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. We have a fascinating episode for you today with Everyday Sexism founder, Laura Bates, who's going to talk to us about an extremist movement not very many people are talking about. And that movement is the men who hate women. And they are much more active than you might be aware, including those men who identify as incels.
0: So incels are so-called involuntary celibates. These are men who aren't having sex and would like to be. Um, and they think that it is essentially a woman's role in life to give men sex. They blame and hate women who aren't having sex with them. And they believe that women should be essentially reduced to sexual slavery. Um, and they encourage and, um, fantasise about rising up in what they describe as an incel rebellion or a day of retribution when incels will go out and massacre women, kill as many women as they can to punish them.
1: More from Laura Bates later on. But first, I wrote a column for yesterday's Irish Times, which got a huge reaction online. And in terms of emails sent to me expressing solidarity with the woman in Dingle, I was writing about the woman who was raped as she slept in her bed, raped by a trusted family friend. Now, the case got even more widely talked about recently um, because Joe Duffy did a show on it about the glowing testimonials for the rapist Connor Quaid. These testimonials saying what a great fella he was were read out in court, re-traumatising the victim again and causing so much pain to her family and friends. I wanted to somehow reach out to that woman so I tried to do it in a column and here it is. Dear Sister, You are not actually my sister but for the purposes of this letter and because I don't know your name I will call you that. In some ways, I feel you are my sister. You are a woman who has been abused simply because you are a woman. Many of us can relate to you on that level, even if we have not shared your trauma. Those of us women and girls who have been sexually assaulted understand even more deeply what you have been through. There are so many of us too many of us. Some of us have shared our stories and many have not. Some of us were afforded justice and many were not. We understand your torment, your anguish, your rage, your sadness, your determination to seek reparation and your will to survive. We know and feel your pain We are in awe of your strength in speaking out. We see you. We love you. We are proud of you. I just wanted you to know. Many men and boys, there are many good men and boys, also feel kinship with you. Despite what we sometimes hear, they do not need to have daughters or sisters themselves to fully comprehend what was stolen from you that night in June 2018. That night, a trusted family friend, 26-year-old Connor Quaid of Monterey, Dingle, County Kerry, climbed into your bed while you were, as the court heard, curled up asleep in your pyjamas. Most people only need to be human to understand the horror of what you went through that night and of what you have suffered since. I am writing to you, sister, because I want you to feel that solidarity and compassion deep in your bones as you try to move on in these next few days, weeks, months and years. I want you to know that you are not alone. Sister, even though it might sometimes feel that way, you are not alone. I will say it again. You are not alone, although I know that there are people in your area who do not believe you. I know because I've been contacted about them about the people in Dingle, young and older, who in their ignorance and callousness seem to have decided you are somehow responsible for Quade's crime and for the fact that he was convicted and sentenced to six and a half years in prison. There are people who still choose to ignore the clear evidence of your trauma, the guilty verdict of the jury, the sentence handed down by the judge, who choose to ignore the fact that shortly after the horrific incident, struggling to make sense of what had happened, you sent a message to your assailant on Facebook accusing him of rape. The court heard that Quaid's replies to these accusations were accepting of his guilt. The court also heard that he has since shown no remorse. He pleaded not guilty. I spent the last week thinking about you sister and about our other sisters in Ireland and all over the world. I thought about Evie Neulavon, harassed in her UCD workplace and warned that speaking out about her harasser would damage his career. I watched the documentary Athlete A and thought about all the young American gymnasts who were sexually assaulted by their team doctor, the convicted serial rapist Larry Nassar. I thought about the abusive phone calls and letters Nassar's supporters sent to the victims even after the full horror of what he had done to hundreds of girls under the guise of medical treatment was revealed. I spent the Easter weekend thinking about them and about you and about the men from Dingle and elsewhere who sat down and wrote eight glowing testimonials about Conor Quaid in the hope that his sentence would be reduced. All perfectly legal, of course. These character references are part of our justice system, That system meant you and your family were forced to sit in court and hear all about your rapist's commitment to a local GAA club and the time he had taken care of an elderly relative. You had to hear praise for Quaid from a retired guarded detective sergeant and from the owner of one of your local pubs who said he was the best employee I've had in 25 years. You sat and listened to the words of a man, now a big shot in Dingle, GAA, praising Quade's ability to be a team player. Because of these testimonials, sister, you and your family and your friends now move around the beautiful Dingle Peninsula, knowing exactly how highly some of your neighbours regard the man who raped you while you were curled up asleep in your bed. Your relative wrote to Joe Duffy's live line at RTE Radio 1 saying it was very difficult for us to come forward in a small town. I am getting panic attacks knowing that people who support the rapist publicly are living so close to me. It brought back the memory of another County Kerry sister who in 2009 had to sit in a courtroom and watch 50 people from Lestol line up to shake hands with and warmly hug her abuser, Danny Foley. I thought of the priest, a character witness in that case, saying Foley had always struck him as having the highest respect for women. Shame on them, sister. Shame on all of them. That shame is a burden they must carry all their lives. The publican, the big noise in the GAA, the retired Garda, the priest, anyone who whispers, that poor lad Quaid, all the huggers and the handshakers. May they hang their heads low, bowed down by the burden of shame they carry their reputations tainted, their true characters exposed. Not you, though, sister. Never you. There's no shame on you, sister. You can move through the world with your head held high for the rest of your life. We walk beside you. We see you. We love you. We are proud of you. I just needed you to know. In solidarity, Roisin. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this article, you can visit Rape Crisis Help or call the National 24-Hour Rape Crisis Helpline at 1800 778 888. I have to say the reaction to that column has been... So powerful with so much love and solidarity being shown to that woman in Dingle, and so many messages from men, particularly in my inbox, which was lovely to see. Uh, And I think it's a really important thing to point out before we get to our next segment, because our next part of the episode is about that portion of men that do not send solidarity and love to women, but instead are a movement that is all about hating women. Imagine a world in which a vast network of misogynists are able to operate virtually undetected. These extremists commit deliberate terrorist acts against women. Vulnerable teenage boys are groomed and radicalised. You don't have to imagine that world, you already live in it. Perhaps you didn't know because we don't like to talk about it, but it's time that we started. In her book, Men Who Hate Women, acclaimed feminist writer and everyday sexism founder Laura Bates lifts the lid on the communities of men who hate women going undercover to explore the ideology and impact the worldwide movement has. And I began by asking Laura to tell me about this murky part of the internet that can so often spill into real life and mainstream discourse it's a world of incels and pickup artists and men going their own way. And that's a part of the world known by those involved as the manosphere.
0: Yes. So the manosphere is a term, it's not my term. I think, in a way, it's quite a kind of dismissive, euphemistic term, but it is the term that has been used to describe a network of communities. Um, They are, in many cases, communities concentrated online, but they also have a lot of offline output as well, so it's not just an internet phenomenon. And they are different communities, but they are generally united by a single thread, which is the hatred and dehumanisation of women, although that happens in different ways in the different communities. The communities I look at in the book are incels, men's rights activists, men going their own way, pick-up artists, and trolls. And these are communities that are very much connected. They form a kind of ecosystem. And each of these is a sprawling sort of spider's web, if you like, of forums, social media groups, platforms, blogs, um, video platforms, private chat rooms. And within each, there are men of varying degrees of um, commitment to the cause if you like. So incels are so-called involuntary celibates. These are men who aren't having sex and would like to be um, and they think that it is essentially a woman's role in life to give men sex. They blame and hate women who aren't having sex with them and they believe that women should be essentially reduced to sexual slavery um, and they encourage and um, fantasize about rising up in what they describe as an incel rebellion or a day of retribution when incels will go out and massacre women kill as many women as they can to punish them that's incels um pick up artists um a group that people might be perhaps more likely to have heard of uh, because popular culture presents them as sort of charming lovable rogues think of Barney Stinson, for example, in How I Met Your Mother, perhaps, or even Joey and Friends to a degree. But the international pickup artist industry is massive. It's valued at $100 million. It operates with no regulation in almost every country around the world, with men paying tens of thousands of pounds in real world offline boot camps to be taught to harass, accost and even in some cases assault and rape women. The leading lights of this industry are men who have boasted about rape in some cases, um, in other Others argued for it to be legalised, and off online, they have thousands of blogs, websites, training courses essentially teaching men that it is possible to make any woman have sex with you if you just know the right tips and tricks. And these include things like overcoming what they describe as LMR or last minute resistance. In other words, forcing a woman to go through with having sex with you if she's changed her mind and decided that she doesn't want to. So far from the kind of um, popular portrayal of pickup artists as kind of harmless and charming, we're actually talking about a massive industry essentially teaching men how to prey on women. Then there are men going their own way. These are men who are so convinced that women are evil and harmful that they believe that they need to be cut out of their lives altogether, that you shouldn't have contact with women, with women in your own family, you shouldn't have relationships with women, in many cases that you shouldn't have any contact with women even at work. Which, again, I think sounds very extreme until you realise that, for example, Mike Pence, the former vice president of the United States, famously refused to have dinner ever alone with any woman other than his wife, or that 27% of American men now say that they avoid one on one meetings with female colleagues in the workplace. So in many cases, these communities are much bigger than you might think, and they are starting to have a much wider impact on society than you might think. That isn't to say, I should clarify, that Mike Pence would necessarily define himself as a man going his own way. Um, But just an example of the fact that some of these philosophies um, that are very much kind of ascribed to these groups online are much more widespread than we might think. Then there are men's rights activists. These are men who claim to be very concerned with real pressing issues affecting men, things like workplace injury, things like veterans' rights, things like the male mental health crisis. But they are groups who do vanishingly little to actually support any of those causes. Instead, they obsessively spend their time and energy attacking and undermining women and in particular feminists so for example trying to defund frontline women's sexual violence services um, starting campaigns for example to rebrand domestic abuse awareness month bash a violent bitch month Um, and this is a group given enormous coverage in the press so very often provided a platform in the mainstream media often without particular challenge And online trolls are uh, a group often dismissed as kind of pathetic, lonely losers, but in reality, they include respected businessmen, children's football coaches, husbands and fathers. And these are men who have perfected mass harassment techniques with complex names and tactics like brigading, for example, in Gamergate, which was a huge campaign of abuse against female journalists and women in the gaming community, which saw 2 million tweets sent in just two months, including bomb threats, death threats, rape threats. And the internet's biggest gathering of trolls, a website called 4chan, is a website with 28 million unique monthly visitors, just to give you an example of the kind of scale that we're talking about here. It's common demographic, most common demographic is 18 to 34 year old college educated white men. So those are the uh, kind of brief rundown of the main groups that we look at in the book.
1: Laura, I mean, it's uh, your book is kind of terrifying, but I think essential reading. Uh, But we could be all here all day uh, discussing this question. But could you give us an insight from your research into why we are where we are Um, because you do mention in the book that um, it sort of begins a little bit, ironically, with a male feminist movement that kind of in a way went wrong or people split away from. So where is all this coming from? What are the origins apart from obviously centuries and and millennia of, you know, um, discrimination against women? But what has led to these particular groups forming and being so prevalent on the internet?
0: Well, these groups have been around for a long time, but I think we're seeing a very dramatic uptick in recruitment by these groups over the last few years. In part, I think certainly there is a relationship here between the rise in these groups and the backlash against a perceived kind of growing momentum behind civil rights movements. Um, In particular, the increased media attention around the feminist movement in the wake of Me Too, but also more generally over the last 10 years, has corresponded with a recruitment drive amongst these groups using that media attention to suggest to vulnerable and impressionable young men that the world is stacked against them, that white men are now the real persecuted minority in our society and so on. So it's partly a backlash against progress or perceived progress. But I think in many ways, there are also other factors playing in here. So it's no coincidence, I think, that these groups are very successfully recruiting so many young men at a time when we've seen massive uh, slashes in funding for youth centres. So young men who find in these groups a sense of belonging, a feeling of community, of pride, of brotherhood, of a cause, of a purpose. All of those things are things that they might have otherwise found in offline spaces where they were able to gather and and meet in groups. And those offline spaces are not necessarily available to them at the moment. So I think that there's that as well. But I think the other issue that we're really not very aware of is that these groups have recently perfected and really honed very effective grooming and radicalization techniques. So they are very actively recruiting for their cause, they are reaching out and finding young men And they have got better and better and better at using the internet, using algorithms, using social media platforms, using cultural memes and touch points as delivery systems for hate to young people. And because nobody is particularly aware that these groups exist in the mainstream, there is very little in the way of resistance there for them reaching these boys, whether it might be finding them, for example, on gaming live streams, speaking in their ear over the headphones while they're actually sitting in their own bedrooms at home or finding them, for example, on bodybuilding forums. They're very clever at where they're coming. They're not expecting these boys to find an incel forum. They're coming to where these boys are. And they're so clever at thinking about where that might be. So if you think about a bodybuilding forum, that was a really odd thing for me when I started researching the book, that more and more manosphere content was popping up on bodybuilding forums, which seemed completely unrelated. In some cases, there was more manosphere material on bodybuilding Forums, tens of thousands of posts about it than there were actual posts about muscle building or about exercise. And then I suddenly realized if you're a man trying to recruit young men to these groups, there you have a captive, a ready audience primed, a group of young men, because it is mostly young men on these websites already particularly concerned and anxious about societal prescriptions of masculinity and a particular kind of strong, visibly bulky masculinity. So they're incredibly clever at how they're finding these boys and at how they're recruiting them.
1: Um, This might be a good time to bring in Alex because in order to do your research, you created a sort of online persona to really get in into one of these groups and to look at what was going on. So tell us about Alex and um, how you came up with the character and what you experienced through his eyes.
0: I wanted to create Alex to show how easy it can be for a very uh, ordinary quote unquote um, young man to get drawn into these groups because I think for many parents in particular and educators there's a tendency to think oh well this won't affect my kids you know they'd never be silly enough to go onto one of these forums. So Alex was a very typical uh, young white guy and he was in his early 20s he was um A bit disillusioned, he felt that he wasn't very successful in life and he felt a bit nettled by the idea that everyone in the media suddenly seemed to be saying he was privileged and he didn't associate himself with that word privilege. And he started out, he was into gaming, so at first he was on YouTube and he was on gaming chat rooms and forums looking for tips and every now and then something would crop up and I'd click on it and I'd follow it as in, in character as Alex, as this person I created. And and it might be a link to a YouTube video that was all about um, the gender pay gap being a myth, or it might be a link to a pickup forum that taught you about how actually you could use three simple tricks to get any woman in the world to go to bed with you. And from there, gradually you'd kind of get chatting to somebody in the comments, or perhaps you'd be led to a more generic forum where suddenly you'd see uh, a picture of a guy swapping underwear that he'd stolen from his little sister with an another guy and you think well that's odd and you click on that and very very gradually you get sucked into this world that's very appealing because it's full of irony and jokes and a sense of community and these are men who are online a great deal of the time so you start to get to know them many of them are posting hundreds or thousands of times a day and there's lots of kind of camaraderie and jokes. And at first you'd think, Oh, we're just joking. We're just letting off steam. These are, these are tasteless jokes about women. And they wouldn't let us do that in the real world because of the woke police and it's all snowflakes these days. So let's, let's be online in this community. And then very gradually over time, it's a kind of slippery slope. And at a certain point, the jokes cease to be jokes, but it's really difficult to put your finger on where that happens. And suddenly you know the language and you're in this world where there is an entire lexicon that's been created. And suddenly you've been desensitized because it's happening so much all around you in this world that you're in to the fact that although you're all talking about women all the time, you're not seeing the word woman used, you're seeing the word void, which is a a shortening of female humanoid because actually you've created you've created this community in which women are so dehumanized that you don't even call them women anymore but it's happened very slowly and very gradually and you kind of feel like you know these people and they're your comrades and so you suddenly get to this point where you're in it and you couldn't say how you got there because it's this very very cleverly lubricated slippery slope with with jokes and memes and funny content and these guys describe the use of memes and viral YouTube videos to attract children as young as 11. They describe it as adding cherry flavor to children's medicine. They know exactly what they're doing. It's incredibly effective. And Alex was my way in. He was my way of, of gaining access to these forums, which in many cases ban women and. Um, In many cases, they're extremely paranoid. They're terrified that um, other users might be undercover FBI agents, that they're going to be arrested, which is ironic because they're completely under the radar of mainstream law enforcement anyway. Um, But Alex was my way to really experience it and to, you know, to give them a fair hearing and say, "I've, I've been in this. I have lived this for nearly two years and this is what I found.
1: I mean, yeah, it's terrifying. And I think some people listening maybe might be thinking, well, okay, there's a whole lot of people talking a load of terrible stuff on the internet, maybe, you know, letting off steam, sort of, as you said, banter, locker room talk, you know, hiding from the woke police. What's the harm? But I mean... I think what what really comes across from your book and the reason you wrote the book, I assume, is because there is very real life consequences to all of this. Could you talk to us a bit about that, about some of the real life incidences of violence um, and murder, in fact, that have been linked to all of what you're talking about?
0: Absolutely. And this is one of the frustrating things. Very few people know about these communities and those who do absolutely dismiss them as tiny fringe movements of online losers who really ought to be pitied. They say, you know, these are men sitting in their basements eating what sits in their Y fronts that never see the light of day. And, and that is really dangerous misconception, partly because these are enormous communities. It's not just a handful of losers. We're talking about communities in the tens or even hundreds of thousands. We're talking about um, millions in the tens of millions of views of this content, millions and millions of posts being shared. So we're talking about a much bigger group than you anticipate, is the first thing to say. The second thing is that these are men who act on their ideologies. These are not just men blowing off steam online repeatedly again and again, men are Around the world, have come offline and absolutely, having been radicalized by this extremist misogynist ideology, have committed atrocities and mass terror attacks against women. For example, Elliot Rodgers' Isla Vista massacre in 2014, in which Elliot Rodgers murdered six people and injured 14 others. Uh, He went to a sorority house and very openly said he was going to murder every stuck-up, spoilt bitch who had refused to have sex with him. He absolutely, explicitly and clearly said he was acting in the name of his incel ideology. He left behind a manifesto to that effect. Um, The Toronto van attack carried out by Alec Manassian more recently is another example of this in 2018. This was an attack in which 10 people were murdered and 14 seriously injured, 80% of the victims' women. Um, Again, this was something that he described as an incel rebellion. He referenced Elliot Rodger. He told police officers when they arrested him that he had been radicalised by incels online and that he wanted to murder women to punish them for not having had sex with him. In Toronto, just over a year ago, a boy walked into a, a teenage boy, walked into a massage parlor and murdered a woman with a machete and stabbed another woman again explicitly in the name of incel ideology here in 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 England, um, a teenager named Ben Moynihan went on a stabbing spree, an attempted murder spree. He attempted to murder three women in a two month period, leaving notes for the police, telling them that he hated women and wanted to gouge their eyes out because they wouldn't have sex with him. This has happened so many times that in the book I've traced specifically this extremist ideology around incels and misogyny, extremist misogyny, to the murder or serious injury of over 100 people in the last 10 years alone. And it's really shocking when you think that these men are doing this, they're acting in the name of this extremism. And yet the vast majority of people have never even heard of it. Even people who've heard of something like the Toronto van attack, in many cases outside of a particular kind of feminist internet bubble, don't know what the motivation behind that attack was. These men aren't charged as terrorists, they're not described in the media as terrorists. And beyond the men who are actually committing atrocities in the name of these groups, they are also extremely, in many cases, influential more generally in promoting these ideologies offline. So, for example, my investigation reveals active members of these communities who are serving current politicians or running for office in different countries around the world, men who have been serving politicians and have run online communities where they've been writing online that um, all feminists fantasize about um, rape because they wish that they Were attractive enough to be raped. Men who have been serving current politicians whilst writing online in these communities, um, that rape isn't all bad because at least the rapist enjoys it. Um, President Trump's right-hand man, Steve Bannon, actively courted the votes of incels in his election campaign, according to a Cambridge Analytica whistleblower. Men's rights activists have caught the ear of policymakers in the US, Australia, and the UK with evidence that has that has then been brought into Parliament and into policy making. There is a huge degree to which these extremists have actually managed to infiltrate our mainstream media, our politics, our schools and our businesses. And yet these are groups that the vast majority of people have no idea even exist. And Laura, you talked about
1: terrorism there, which that's what you'd class it as. And I suppose when you put it like that, the way you describe it is terrorism. But yes, like you said, when it's reported, that's not necessarily the way it's reported, but also the motives that are very specifically anti-women that you describe are less likely to be kind of um highlighted in articles about these attacks. Do you have any insight into why that is? Why we are kind of I suppose minimizing or turning a little bit of a blind eye to the very real fact that the motives are this kind of, is this anti-woman movement.
0: Well, I think there are a number of reasons. The first and most obvious is that we are used to and desensitized to violence against women, male violence against women. Um, on average, one woman every three days in England and Wales is murdered by a current or former partner. Around the world, one in three women will be raped or beaten in her lifetime. Violence against women committed by men is a normal fact of our daily lives. It is a wallpaper of our world that we accept and that we normalise. And that means that we find it very difficult to recognise this as something extreme or extraordinary because it is so normal to us. We also have a history of not taking white men men who commit terror attacks seriously You know, white supremacists as well are very often excused. Their actions are brushed off or normalized by the media, even by the police forces. We saw this um, just recently in the shooting in in Georgia, Atlanta, uh, where Asian women in in the main victims were Asian women who were massacred by a gunman. And a police officer came out and gave a statement to the media saying that this guy had a really bad day. When white men kill people, we are less likely to hear about it. In the first place, terror attacks by Muslim perpetrators receive three and a half times as much coverage as those by non-Muslim perpetrators, for example. But we are also extremely slow to join the dots and we just don't recognise violent extremist misogyny as a hate movement or as a form of terrorism, even though it fits every possible international definition of terrorism when these massacres occur. Um, We also don't recognise the connections between domestic abuse and terrorism. Over a third of mass shootings in the US have perpetrators with a history of domestic abuse or stalking of women. Um, In 54% of mass shootings, the victims include an intimate partner or family member. If we were to make those connections, if we were to take violence against women by men seriously, then we would be going a very long way towards stopping some of these atrocities happening. But we don't. We just don't take it seriously. And so it's completely under the radar. You say, we don't want to talk about a mass
1: movement encouraging violent hatred of women, much easier to dismiss or belittle. But the more that we look away, the worse it gets. I mean, I presume that's your motivation for for writing this book.
0: Yes. So I think any woman writing online, and it's worse for trans women, for women of colour, any of those women will know who these men are. Because if you're a woman who talks about feminism online in particular, these men come to you. But most people have never heard of them. So I've been aware of these men for about 10 years and these communities to a degree because they send me 200 messages a day about raping me and pulling my bowels out through stab wounds. But the issue was that for a long time, there was an argument that we shouldn't give them the oxygen of wider publicity, that that was what they wanted. And I, I was sympathetic to that. that. That made sense to me. The reason I decided to write this book now and to start talking about it now was because it seemed to me that there was a real uptick in recruitment going on in these groups and that actually denying them the oxygen of mainstream publicity wasn't particularly successfully stifling them. What it was actually doing was enabling them to recruit teenage boys highly effectively without anybody in the mainstream and without parents and educators knowing it was going on and that that was actually hampering the potential to prevent it happening Um, It was really dramatic when I was researching the book and I was looking into all of these mass attacks, these terror attacks where women had been massacred by these men. And I was ringing up counter terror organizations to ask them, you know, what they were doing about it, whether they were being traced or tracked. And I literally had people at the other end of the phone going quiet and saying, sorry, did you, what, incel, can you spell that? I, and it was really clear at that counter-terror level, at government level, that there is zero awareness of this. I came across a US government counter-terrorism accountability report, which is literally looking at how well they deal with extremist threats And they track all kinds of so-called extremism. People with extreme views about federal ownership of public lands is one of them. Uh, People with extreme views about animal rights is one of them. And in the 10-year period of this report, in the name of many of these forms of extremism that they were tracking, like animal rights, no murders or injuries had happened. But there had been three incel massacres where dozens of people had been injured or murdered and they didn't pop up on this report because it simply wasn't on the radar of the people looking at how we tackle extremism. So I thought, actually, that's a really significant issue. There is every every evidence to suggest that this is a growing threat, that more women are likely to die as a result, and that more boys are being recruited very successfully, vulnerable teenagers... And I really was starting to see that in my school visits. I spend a lot of time working with young people in schools, um, thousands of young people hundreds of schools across the country, maybe two schools a week I go into in in pre-pandemic times. And in the last two years, there has been a very distinct uptick in the number of boys coming to those sessions with very clear um, hallmarks of radicalisation boys coming with a real belligerence, a complete refusal to engage, boys who come believing that the gender pay gap is a myth, that women are lying about rape, that men are losing their jobs because of false rape allegations. And it became really clear from the fake statistics those boys were quoting and from the men who they were naming as kind of role models, who are men from the manosphere, that this was radicalisation and grooming. We just don't call it that. So, All of that together made me think, actually, it feels that there is a very clear and present increasing danger here and that nobody knows it's happening. There wasn't a book about all of these groups. It it didn't exist. And and because of that, I thought there was reason to, to break the silence now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's that's kind of very worrying when you talk about the schools, how you notice that you notice that the boys had were actually using the language that you were finding on these sites and yeah. they had all the, the fake statistics about rape and stuff. But one bit that particularly struck me, I'm just going to read uh, from your book. To show people how it kind of manifests in real life, really, I suppose, is that if you type the word porn into Google and click on the, the top link that appears, the most easily accessible run of the mill free site you can find to give you a snapshot when I follow exactly this process, among the very first videos offered are one about a teen with a knife in pussy, one about sticking the biggest possible objects into the vagina of a tiny teen, quotes, one about incest, one showing a woman looking terrified as a man covers her mouth and forces himself on her. So I'm just not going to go on that you can get the picture of all the disgusting um horrible things that are done to women in the name of porn. And then you say, When I visit schools, extraordinary though it sounds, I frequently hear young people say that rape is a compliment, really, or crying is part of foreplay. At one school at which they had had a rape case involving a 14-year-old boy, a teacher asked... Why didn't you stop when she was crying? And the boy looked at her bewildered and said, because it's normal for girls to cry during sex. And you say, this is the backdrop against which manosphere ideology risks taking hold. That kind of mm-hmm. just jumped out at me as a, a very worrying. And I, I mean, you obviously are talking about schools in England. So, you know, you haven't done the same here. I'd love you to come over here, Laura, and talk to some young boys in, in Ireland and some young girls indeed and see what the story is here.
0: I'd love that too. And in fact, there was a particular visit that I did where I did speak to some school kids in Ireland and one of them told me something that really struck a chord with me, which was that they'd had a sexual, um, a sex ed lesson. And in the lesson, they had been, each um, girl had been given a, a piece of sellotape, a length of sticky tape by the teacher. And they'd been told to stick it on a boy's jumper and they were those kind of fuzzy school jumpers. And then they were told to peel it off and stick it on another boy and so on. And by the time they got halfway around the room, um, the, the stick had gone because the tape was covered in fuzziness. And so it wouldn't stick anymore and it fell to the ground. And that was a metaphor being used by the teacher to show how a woman's value is diminished. And she's eventually ruined if she has sex with too many boys. So I think that uh, that's a, a small, a single anecdote, oh, but there is evidence to suggest that these are not issues and attitudes restricted to England and just schools in England, I think.
1: No, and and the other thing, Laura, is it's it's. I mean, it's sort of what I alluded to at the beginning. Like this is a tale of old as old as time. In yeah. in another way, I wrote a piece yes uh, yesterday in the Irish Times. I don't know if you saw it, but we had a, a rape case here, um, and then we had men sort of writing testimonials for the the man who had been convicted of rape and telling what a great guy he was and how wonderful he was. And like ten years ago, we had another rape case in as another part of the country where um, the men lined up in the courtroom to shake the hands and hug the man who'd just been convicted of rape while the rape victim sat there in in, in the courtroom. Uh, so, I mean, like, whereas what you're describing is all very new in terms of maybe the technology and the communities and the movement, we're really dealing with stuff that, you know, is very, very ingrained in some ways in our society and in our attitudes.
0: Absolutely. And I think that it is really significant to say that those that these, these are simply new Um, channels for old attitudes but they are channels on steroids if you like in terms of the algorithm and the reach behind them so these are absolutely attitudes that have existed for decades, but the spread of them to young people is something that is happening very, very fast and perhaps with much greater intensity than has been possible in previous years. And it's so important to say that because people have this perception that things are getting better, that we're on a trajectory, a positive trajectory. And people really often say to you, just be patient because these are you know, antiquated ideas. This misogyny it will die out you know, with the dinosaurs. There's this idea that it's kind of older generations. And it's really important to stress that in attitude surveys, repeatedly, we see again and again when the general public is surveyed, for example, in the British Attitude Survey, and they ask people whether a woman was to blame for being raped, for example, if she was uh, drunk or if she'd been flirting beforehand. A horrifying number of the British public thinks that she was to blame. It's around a quarter for one and a third to the, for the other. But when you look at the youngest cohort surveyed, those numbers leap they are much more likely to blame a woman for being raped because of her behaviour. So this idea that it's kind of, we can be complacent about younger generations all being woke and and up to speed with this stuff, is really dangerous. And particularly that thing about online porn. We know that 60% of young people see online porn by the age of 14. A quarter have seen it by the age of 12. And it's not just anecdotal evidence. There was a really powerful study just released actually this week, I think, by researchers at Durham University, led by Dr. Fiona Vera Gray and Professor Claire McGlynn. And what they found was that they analysed the content of these very mainstream, easily accessible porn sites. And they found that one in eight of every video that's available um, is about sexually violent, coercive or non-consensual content. So in other mm. words, that, that porn that shows women being raped, being hurt, being humiliated, being degraded, and, and sends the message to young people, this is what sex is, this is what's normal. It, it's it's massive. It's a huge part of the content that's out there. And so it's it's really... Worth considering that these attitudes are being ingrained in the younger generation at a much faster rate.
1: Before I talk to you about solutions, because I would like to talk about that if there are <laughs> yes, any. I know you're, please. you're not. Your book isn't necessarily. It's more an exploration, and you do have a little bit about what we need to do, but it's not Laura. Probably it's too big a job for you to tackle on your own. But certainly you have some ideas around it anyway. But um, I just wanted to, to talk to you about a couple of ways that this these these ideologies sort of leak into the mainstream because yeah. I, I find that very interesting. It hadn't struck me before. But, you know, one aspect is, you know, the hysteria that you, you mention in the book um, that's whipped up about the idea that uh, recording misogyny is a hate crime, for example, which is has come in, is kind of, um, it's going to see innocent men locked up in jail for having the yeah. temerity to pay a woman a compliment, that kind of thing, or that wolf whistles will suddenly be criminalised. And so this yeah. kind of idea that, you know, and it's, it's you see, it's, you see it in lots of different articles and mainstream uh, discourse that, you you know this is this is going to be a terrible thing that's going to happen when in fact as you point out every statistic proves the contrary women actually shy away from reporting even the most major and devastating yeah. crimes and they're really unlikely to report being raped so but the, and yet still this kind of and i mean it probably comes from all the the places you're saying in the movement that you're talking about this idea that oh this is ridiculous and this is gone too far and, you know, men are under attack. Would you mm-hmm. Would you equate, you obviously do equate that with kind of um, those ideas leaking into mainstream discourse.
0: Yes, it works both ways. It's a kind of symbiotic relationship. These groups are obsessed with what they call the Overton window, which is the kind of window of socially acceptable, publicly acceptable discourse. And they suggest that when the Overton window is widened, it it leads the way for their ideas to be more easily accepted. So what that means is if a teenage boy is hearing the President of the United States saying in response to the allegations, for example, against a Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, that it's a very scary time to be a young man in America. In other words, if he's implying that, that men's livelihoods are at risk because women are making up allegations... Or if a teenage boy hears on the Today programme the presenter suggesting using the words witch hunt to describe me too, or if they see an editorial in one of our biggest national newspapers suggesting that men are now terrified for their jobs and are being brought down in terrifying numbers by this witch hunt that's gone too far, all of which are real examples of things that have happened. All of that gives legitimacy and normalisation and validation to the slightly more extreme versions of that ideology that these extremist views that the groups are then peddling online. It makes it easier for people to to take them at face value because they're hearing them echoed in a slightly sanitised, slightly watered down form from media platforms and public figures who are seen as extremely respectable and trustworthy and the media has a real role to play here because the media chooses repeatedly to portray feminism as um, hand-wringing harpies uptight women making a fuss about nothing literally our tabloids have put women on the front pages with the word feminazi above their heads when they've dared to complain about sexual harassment for example And there is a symbiotic gain to be had here. So the fact that we know, for example, that one of Donald Trump's main election advisers was actively looking at the votes of incels shows you that these groups, because they're much bigger than people realise, there is a quid pro quo there. There is political gain to be had in appealing to these groups and throwing out dog whistles to them. They are a kind of silent cohort of, of voters, of viewers. And the other thing is that for the media, of course, there's huge gains to be had from the kind of clickbait controversy that you create with content that's about, you know, rabid feminist claims that Kleenex man-sized tissues are sexist and creating a debate around that for people to get outraged about on social media. And that is a real topic I've been asked to debate by a media platform in the UK compared to, say, doing a report on the fact that just 1.5% of rape allegations reported to the police result in a charge or summons. That's apparently considered too dry and uninteresting a topic to have the same kind of coverage. So the media plays a role as well. They whip up that hysteria, that idea that feminists are whining about nothing. And another
1: thing, I think some of our listeners won't be aware that this is even a thing, but something called about the distribution of sex. I found that fascinating. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that, because You can tell a bit more, but just one bit of your book, you you quote an an article by Toby Young in The Spectator, and the headline was, here's what every incel needs, a sex robot, in which he demanded, why is there so little compassion for the have-nots when it comes to the unequal distribution of sex? It must be because the, quotes, victims of this type of discrimination are nearly all male and as such classed as the oppressors, not the oppressed. What is the story with the distribution of sex and the idea that, you know, everybody deserves it and, uh, you know, we should be fighting for these rights.
0: So incels uh, use this kind of faux academic and historical terminology often to kind of build up their, their worldview. And one of the arguments that they use is this thing called the redistribution of sex. In other words, their argument goes that sex is a basic human right, and that women should be forced to give it to men by various means. Some of them argue for sexual slavery. Some of them argue for a kind of government-sanctioned form of rape, whereby women are forced to have sex with men. Um, Many of them make extremely violent and misogynistic references to sex workers in this context. And it was a really good example of how the mainstream media engages uncritically with these hate groups that this idea, this concept of the redistribution of sex was picked up and written about across the mainstream media in a particular period a few years ago. Um, There was a man who wrote for the New York Times about it, um, with kind of in in many elements of his article kind of being positive about the fact that it seemed like a good idea. Um, There was the Toby Young article, there were a number of other academics who kind of weighed in with articles as well. And they were basically engaging at face value with this extreme misogynistic reduction of women to to commodities it sounds like something straight out of the handmaid's tale absolutely
1: once and again we see Margaret Atwood kind of knowing yeah, what the story is exactly,
0: and yet it was it was given that respectability of a mainstream platform debating it as if it was a valid suggestion and And it's difficult not to think that our complete normalization and desensitization to misogyny was was at the root of that, and it just gives these groups such credibility to get that kind of publicity and that kind of mainstream discourse and the The mistake that they made was to take it at face value to act as if you know this was a reasonable and valid proposition when the reality is that these are men who believe that women should be massacred and murdered. Laura, I want to talk to you about solutions.
1: Um, obviously, I'm not putting it all on you. Tell us how to fix this. But, you know, reading your book, it, it, you ca- I can't help feeling very hopeless. and like that this feels mm-hmm. so pervasive and so huge. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. And and we're talking about all those real life examples of how it spills into actual real life violence and, and all the mm-hmm. rest. Do you feel hopeless or do you think there's things happening that are going to change this or turn the tide?
0: I think there's an incredible resistance going on, and that's something to draw great hope from. Women around the world are fighting back against this stuff. Young women are fighting back. Girls at school are fighting back. Generations of feminists who fought all this before us are fighting back again and supporting younger women as they pick up the mantle. There is every reason to be hopeful, and there's kind of reason to be hopeful because at the moment, with this stuff in particular... We are literally doing nothing. So there's all kinds of things we could do. You know, there's a lot of room for progress because we're currently doing nothing. So at least there are really obvious steps that we can start to take. We can look at regulation of the porn industry and what on earth is going on with these websites, putting out one-eighth of their content showing women being raped to young boys and kind of mainstream, easily accessible platforms. That is a clear, obvious focal point to look at. We have social media platforms that in many cases are enabling and providing algorithms that support and the reach of these groups who are calling for women to be raped and murdered. That's already illegal in many cases. That is something that we can and take action on holding those those platforms and those companies to account. Um, There is education and prevention work that could be done here in just the same way that we resource and fund and support teachers in schools to look out for other forms of radicalisation and terrorism and grooming. We could absolutely recognise this as a form of radicalisation and grooming and and support teachers to be taking that action in schools. I'd say that's one of the most crucial and urgent pieces of prevention that we could do. But we could also look at counter terror organisations getting these guys on their watch lists. We need to be looking at this as a terror threat. is extremism. These are people being massacred in terror attacks. So at government policy level, there is something that we can do there. There's a huge amount that we can do at policy level looking at the links between domestic abuse and terror attacks more broadly. So gun regulation in the United States, for example, to prevent people with a record of domestic abuse or stalking from ever having access to a firearm. Something that simple, which at the moment there are massive loopholes in, could make a huge difference to this. So there's a huge amount of stuff that we really could do and the media has a real role to play here as well. The way in which the media reports on these attacks matters. The way in which the media reports on men who murder their spouses and their children matters. It plays a role in the normalization of these kinds of ideas. And of course, at a kind of broader level, the representation of women and diverse representation of um, different races and ethnicities, of people with disabilities and so on, at the top of politics and tech companies will make a difference as well. Because it's not deliberately these algorithms play right into the hands of white supremacists and male supremacists, but it's also not a coincidence that they are made by a vastly white male workforce. So there's lots of things to do.
1: <laughs> well, that's good. That it does sound a bit more hopeful. Um, for people listening who have sons, this is something we hear about raising boys, and I think you've 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 raised a few red flags for anyone listening who maybe has you know teenage boys at the moment. Is there is there things we can do in terms of talking to young men, opening up these conversations, being a bit more vigilant around maybe where they're getting their information and that kind of thing?
0: Yes, there's so much that we can do in terms of internet literacy and encouraging young people to recognise that not everyone is who they say they are on the internet, that not everything that we find on the internet should be taken at face value. I think recognising the reality of young people's online lives is a crucial step here. There is a huge gulf created by the fact that we are living in a moment that has never happened before and will never happen again, where a generation of non-digital natives are parenting and educating a generation of digital natives. And we cannot underestimate the impact that has Yes we need to learn what the landscape of young people's online lives looks like if we want to be able to support them and that means understanding for example that for the vast majority of teenagers their main news source is youtube it needs recognizing if we're going to be able to talk to them on, on in language that they understand and that makes sense to them so at that point it makes sense to talk about the news that you get on youtube and whether or not it, it's right whether it's real whether you can trust it trust those kinds of online sources you can look out for kind of red flags both both in behaviour, behaviourally, a teenager who suddenly becomes very withdrawn, who is suddenly spending a, a much greater amount of time online, who is suddenly cagey about their search history, um, or who starts using language like uh, triggered, words like normies, anything about black pill or red pill, those are all warning signs to look out for. And I'd really encourage open conversation, making sure that young people know that they can talk to you about anything and that they can talk to you about what's happening online. If you can get them to talk to you about this stuff early on in a, in a supportive and non-judgmental environment where you have the opportunity to interrogate some of these ideas together, that's a really good opportunity to disrupt radicalization as it's happening. So communication is really key.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we should say as well, uh, you know, there's there's a you do mention it in the book. I mean, men are more three times more likely to, to uh, take their own lives, to die by suicide, you know, to have lack of help when it comes to mental health supports, you know. So there are a lot of issues, but it's, it's ironic that all these kind of um, men's rights groups and the incels and everything where they could be maybe helping with that, they're actually making that problem a lot worse. But I want to ask you about men finally, because there are a lot of very, very. I think the majority, I believe the majority of men. I think you do too. Are not anyway like um what what we've been describing for the last nearly hour. Um, and I think men have a massive role to play. And I definitely see men getting more and more engaged. I mean, we spoke before about Sarah Everard and how that had allowed a lot of men to sort of wake up to some of these issues. Do you see that men have a massive role themselves in 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 kind of combating this?
0: Absolutely. And men very often are asking, what can we do? How can we be allies? What's our role in this movement? I think one of the biggest roles men have to play is in talking to other men and in talking to young men, in role modelling alternative forms of masculinity that aren't suffocating young men and pushing them into these communities, in talking to boys about their fears and anxieties and vulnerabilities, which are the kinds of fears often preyed on by these groups when they don't have any other outlet for them in, in role modeling engagement with feminist ideas and with women's issues that isn't just kind of skeptical and, and paranoid. There is so much that the vast majority of men who would never dream of behaving in this way can do to be part of the solution. And and really actively playing a role in how young men perceive these issues is crucial. Because if we have a generation of young men who are being radicalised to believe that women are evil whores who are out to get them and destroy them, which is literally what some of these ideologies are, are saying... Then they are not very likely to listen to a woman like me saying, Don't listen, it's not true, because they've been predisposed to think that I'm a lying bitch who hates them. But if a man in their life that they trust talks to them openly about these issues, they're much more likely to get that message. So that's an incredibly important role that men have to play.
1: And Laura, your book is called Men Who Hate Women. But I just want to stress as well I mean, I think you say it in the book. You don't believe most men hate women, it's a particular group of men who are behaving in this way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's not called Men Hate Women. <laughs> it's called Men Who Hate Women. But but it's important to talk about them. And it's so interesting, actually, that the title has provoked this kind of resistance and this anxiety, because what it tells you is that we're really uncomfortable talking about men as a homogenous group, white men in particular, in a way that we're perfectly comfortable with with putting in a box other members of society and other groups But we're terrified of offending men because we are culturally so used to giving affording men the privilege of discrete identities, uh, giving them the privilege of seeing them as, as unique individuals with their own motivations and identities. And that makes us extremely anxious about talking about them as a group. But I think it's just important to say that we are talking about a really significant number of them. This is a tiny percentage of men, of course, but it is still a very significant number. We are talking in the hundreds of thousands. And just as I think we'd be within our rights and we're very comfortable discussing other kinds of hate movement and other forms of terrorism and extremism, we can't let the fact that we're terrified of talking about men and of offending men and of being met with the cry, not all men, preventing, prevent us from tackling this head on.
1: Well, Laura, thank you very much. I mean, I know that this has all come at a lot, great personal cost to you. Um, you mentioned the abuse that you get and it's, it's been consistent since you started the Everyday Sexism Project. Um, so I want to say, as always, very grateful for everything you do. And I hope that you get a lot of support as well, because, um, I know that with this book and when the book came out, I mean, it must have exacerbated that level of abuse.
0: Yes, it has very much so. Um, There's been a quite frightening kind of drive to to track me down through the um, IP addresses associated with this character, Alex, um, that I used in the different groups. For example, there was a um, media report about me going undercover in these groups. And um, immediately there were some men who posted pictures of themselves with with weapons on, on some of the groups that I'd infiltrated saying, "Okay, which one of you fuckers is Laura Bates? Um, But I've been very lucky in a a funny way that this has all happened during the pandemic and there haven't been in-person events because actually while I was writing the book, I was in the middle of writing the book, there was a judge in the United States who was presiding over a case brought by a self-proclaimed anti-feminist men's rights activist, someone who had very much been part of these communities and he felt that she wasn't dealing with the case in an appropriate way. He thought that she was a feminazi. Um, and he disguised himself as a delivery driver and turned up at her house and shot dead her son and, and seriously injured her husband. And he left behind a um, manifesto online saying feminists should be careful in their meddling with nature. There are 300 million firearms in this country and most of them are owned by men. Um he said things will begin to change when individual men start taking out those specific persons who are responsible for destroying their lives. So I think, you know, there is reason to be concerned that these are very dangerous people. And it was a scary thing to write this book. But I also feel that it's incredibly important that we recognise that this threat exists before it's too late. And at the moment, it doesn't seem that there is very much recognition of it.
1: And what are you doing next, Laura?
0: Well, I'm working on a YA novel at the moment, which is a a decidedly pleasant change of pace, (laughs) um, which will be coming out later this year.
1: Well, I'm glad. I hope it's not about any of these people, but I'm sure there's an element of it in there. Knowing you, you can't stay away from it too much.
0: There is an element of it. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, Laura Bates, thank you so much for joining us. And I think that's illuminated a lot of things and given people a lot to think about and worry about. But that's no harm. We can't look away. We need to look into the belly of the beast in order for um, us to do something about it. So thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: That's all we have time for. That was Laura Bates there. And the book is called Men Who Hate Women. The extremism nobody is talking about. And I really think it's a must read. Um, It's a difficult read, but really important. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time.